set, you gotta learn how to do hey, this on the go. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am walking <laughs> with Liz Fair. Say hi. Hi, everybody. Here, here's the thing. I have wanted to pod with Liz since like I first started the podcast, and um, she like texted me this morning saying, "All right, let's do it. Let's walk through Central Park because that's where you used to record your things." And I, this is so we're recording on just an iPhone, no mic. But this, then I remembered I was going to say no to you. But then I remembered that your first album that changed the world and is a masterpiece, you and Brad recorded on a four track, like at his exactly. apartment. <laughs> right? Lo-Fi is my second name. It's my middle name. Lo-Fi is my middle name. Yes. Yeah, so when you kind of challenged me to do it, I was like, all right, fuck it. Let's walk through the park. And w I got to ask you to start. So Liz Fair, for those of you who don't know, is a genius. And I'm not a genius. You don't think you are? I mean, I have genius ideas. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, sometimes there's not a thought in my head. I think that's common to all geniuses, right? You, you're, you have moments of inspiration and then you work rigorously to try to achieve them. And don't you think, I, you know, I haven't read your b whole book yet, but you just wrote a book called Horror Stories. Um, but I know your work so incredibly well for such a long time. And if a genius is someone who changes the medium in which they work, don't you think that you sort of did that, even if it wasn't your intention? I guess I did, yeah. I mean, I think what I am is just incredibly creative. It doesn't matter the medium, I just have this ability to be, to think outside the box, to take what I'm looking at and turn it into something that other people haven't thought of. It's just what I love to do. It's like, it's the way my mind works. So I'm trying to impose it upon everyone else. You know, like, hey, come over to the imaginative side of the lane. <laughs> Have you always been able though, here, we'll walk, because this was the idea, we're just gonna walk. We're just walking so through Central Park because it's beautiful and I think on my feet very well and I, I have always admired your sort of uh, writing lessons, your writing tutorials, it reminded me of some, I don't know if it was Socrates, but I feel like someone was walking and talking in the forum, discussing important ideas, and that's how I saw your your uh, videos, the writing things, I loved them so much. Oh, thanks, yeah. do one. Oh, we'll do one, at the end of this, you and I are gonna do one for sure on Instagram, but, um, and I really appreciate the it's like comparison. It's a classroom. No, it is, in Central Park, and those things saved, I mean, doing those things kind of like, save my life as an artist so and i i will say you know you encouraged me really early like you wrote to me online somehow you came across them and you wrote to me online early on and it was a big deal to me when you wrote because you're an artist whose work mattered to me and and anytime you know you're putting your own shit out like that it feels scary yeah and so i really appreciate but why where were you in your life at that time that it like hit you in a certain way 2013 14. i was trying to find a way that i could make my art put out music do writing but in a way that other people hadn't done before so i was looking for people with innovative ideas about how to uh, connect with people and convey insight and unusual medium like to do that in I didn't want to do something that everyone else had done and I just saw you f the freedom of you walking around and being inspired by where you are and just hitting us with these six second uh, you know uh, I don't know, like, what do you call them? Do you have a name for them? Well, then I called them six-second screenwriting lessons, but you know, I, I did them because I hated people who were 
just bullshitting about work and, and trying to charge people. And I was really doing it because, I mean, I'm sure you've been at this spot, you know, you open your book by talking about being in a spot where you wanted to make work that mattered. And it's scary to want to make work yeah. that matters yeah. sometimes, isn't it? Yes, because what if you fall short of your expectations and that's all you've got in you? What if you try to make the best art that you possibly can and then you find out you really don't have anything to say? And that's, that's the risk you take. That's the risk I took in every chapter. That's a risk I take with every album and every performance. You know, is this authentic? Am I conveying? Is the audience experiencing something that feels like they were fulfilled, like I represented what they expected, but at the same time surprised them. It's hard to do, it's a hat trick, it's a balancing act. So you still feel that kind of pressure, even though you're, you know, often people who feel that are people who haven't gotten like critical acclaim, but you've had critical acclaim from the very, in fact, you took, I mean, I mean, you targeted critics in the beginning, male critics in the beginning on your first record, but then, you know, other than other than like I guess Derogatis didn't write a great thing at first, or a couple of Chicago guys, but everyone else did, right? And yeah. but do you still find yourself bound up in that stuff sometimes? I follow the Julianne Moore school of career growth, in which like I believe that each job is my last, and I'm always proving that I can get the next one, and it just keeps me sort of on that edge that everyone seeks. I like to be on the edge. You want an edge. So I'm always... Like Pacino in Heat. I'm always... On the edge where yeah, you need to be. Is like, yeah. Everything is I want everything to come off really well. I take every little thing I do seriously. And That's I want to uh, take risks. To, so I'm interested and excited. I get that adrenaline hit. Because you, you think to yourself, oh, this might be the time I go splat and yeah. fail. Yeah, or just that like this could be... Every single thing I do, I want to do as well as I can because it interests me to do so. It engages me to do so. It makes me feel like I'm really connected to my own life. Is that when you're making, like for instance, when you're making the album or even when you pick up the guitar? Because I love how in the book, and I've actually heard you say this a couple times, you talk about when you pick up the guitar, melodies just come, and then you start figuring out what you want to sing about. But there's the writing of the songs, and then there's deciding how you want to organize them, how you want, what the thematic is you want to pull out. and each step it feels different like I wonder the, the writing of the songs does that come from that same place or is that the freest part that's the freest part when I am I feel like I want to say that I was an early adopter of bedroom pop or if not like an influential early bedroom pop artist because that is where you and Lou Barlow that was about it right yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, right, Lou. God, that great photo shoot we did together. Um, I don't even remember that. I just remember I that at really that time it was Lou doing the Sebado thing, and you, you know, yeah. those were the things. Yeah, but like the point at which I'm writing the song, you have to be very gentle with yourself because you want to pull out the most uh, tender, unarmored nuggets you can. You want to reach the soft part of you and tell your heart that it can, it can, it can release. It's you know cage of protection and tell you some things that may make you I mean often when I write a song I actually start crying in the middle of it because I realize something I needed to express that I didn't I wasn't even consciously aware of so that's that's when I know I've got a good one you have that moment All of actual catharsis during the, the writing time. that's when I know that's that's almost how I select songs and will you then just like finish the song when does the craft piece of that come in for you studio I mean, there's a certain amount of arrangement that I need to decide before we go into the studio, but even as we're recording, I might shift arrangements, I might do something different. I mean, there's still some songs that I'm going to change some lyrics on. I give myself a long process to, until the very last minute, I'm going to be changing stuff. Are you rewriting, you're rewriting lyrics then too? 
Yep, rewriting lyrics. There's additional, like I was just listening to one of the songs, Soul Sucker, which I really like. Might be the next single. And it just needs some bass. It needs some bottom. It needs something crunchy and low in the first or the second verse. Like we need to keep developing it. And for me, a lot of times when I'm recording, I'm thinking of range. I'm thinking of these instruments either stacked from like... You know how a great wine has like a nose and it has a finish and it has like a mouthfeel. Mouthfeel. I'm trying to do all of that with each part of the song and the brilliance is Brad does the same thing. He has the exact same sense that I do that we're kind of playing with paint in a weird way. Well, yeah, that's always been the thing on the work that you two I mean your your work has not always been the same. Your albums are all really different. Um, Can we turn the other way? Yeah, I was going to say we could go. Okay, let's go that way. The, if we're going to... we're going to the drum circle. No, we're going to go away from the drum circle, but we are going to follow kind of like the route that I took when I would do these oh, things. Oh, good. Good, good, good. So we're actually we're gonna, having a nostalgic moment with Brian Koffelman yeah, here. Yeah, this is happening. Early screenwriting tutorials. I mean, this is your idea, and I love it. So, the, the record that you guys... Because you're working together um, again. Were you aware back then that... I thought about this a lot. What happens when somebody does something that's truly groundbreaking? Because whether you knew it at the time or not, and and now being old, right? I'm 53. You're younger than I am. I'm 52. But, yeah, but we're we're from the same time, and at that moment, everything was so white hot for you. And then time is weird, right? And things they don't fade. Your music, you know how much your music means to people. But then, like there wouldn't have been um, an Alanis first record if it wasn't for Liz Fair. There wouldn't maybe be Phoebe Bridgers if it wasn't for Liz Ooh, Fair. You're going to get me in trouble. I love Phoebe. No, no, like, I love their music. But do you ever hear that? Do you ever? Do yes, you... I hear the resonance. I hear, but I was, I was part of a continuum too. I didn't just like, I mean, I know it, I did do a different take on things. And I think with my book, Horror Stories, it also is striking people. I'm, I'm very gratified to see the surprise element where they're like, this is not at all what I was expecting. And you lose some people with that. Some people just toss it to the side. They're like, I want a rock memoir. But you also really delight the people that'll follow you there because they're like, I was not expecting that. And that is really refreshing. And I think my record did do that, but I did feel part of a continuum of strong female artists. And But their records were very different, weren't yes, they? I did, a, I did a really, I'm such a weird artist that I can't, I have to do my own thing. It's, they're, they agree. Thank they clearly you. agree with you. Um, but but I, I, I'm not trying to uh, get you in trouble at all. But look, look, Brian, art is the one place no one can tell me what to do. And everybody needs a place in their life where no one can tell them what to do. Well, here, we'll go this way on this little path. So, yeah, but when you, when you first heard those, when you first heard Alanis' record, let's say, did... Did it make you feel, because I, I would think, like I would think if David Mamet, when he first saw my work, whenever it was, he would have been like, holy shit, that guy watched a lot of my fucking movies. <laughs> but then, like 20 years later, maybe he would be like, all right, well, I guess, you know, Dave and I, I guess those guys um, now have found a way to make their own thing. But, but also I would think that even in the beginning, he would have thought, okay, this kind of cool that my work has clearly is going to outlive me. Yes. He's changed culture and that that's the game I'm Exactly. For it he too. changed culture and now it's through 
I'm I'm taking what I learned from that guy's work yes. and then someone's gonna take it from me. And so do you are you aware of your place in that? Yes. I am one hundred percent chasing changing the culture. I, I absolutely see art as a way to you can't you don't force someone, it's like a it's like a compelling argument I'm making to say and especially like with horror stories, I wanted to make a compelling argument for focusing on the personal and focusing on empathy and focusing on self-awareness instead of just pointing fingers and judging outwardly. I want people to consider the personal as weighty as the, you know, I don't know, public or, you know, big entertainment, money, whatever all that stuff is. I think our true lives are lived in intimate moments. And I value that. And so I'm making sort of a big statement saying um let's all focus here a little bit did you ever feel uncomfortable about how much of yourself you revealed you know <laughs> yes <laughs> always it's it's never you know the month before something comes out i have a ton of regret and worry and fear and i just kind of try to white knuckle through it and i think i told my mom i'm like it's gonna be a couple of hard waves and then it's all going to dissipate and it's going to like settle in nicely and don't worry about it. But you know, there is that sense when something first hits that it's turbulent. You don't know how it's going to turn out. There's a sense of like you've changed something, you've shocked a system and how is it going to, how is it going to level out once the turbulence is over? Are you, um, ever, uh, it just occurred, something just occurred to me because I didn't write, write questions down obviously because we just decided no, to do this. we're flowing. Yeah. Free, free flowing. Boy, that's a good song. Um, wow. It sucks that that guy's dead, Tom Petty. Dude, we lost so many people that were just formative for me. Don't do opioids. I would say, <laughs> don't do opioids. Don't worry. <laughs> no, not just I'm you. I'm still living my, my high school era. Like, the good thing about me is my forbidden drug is marijuana, which is not that bad. So I'm always like stopping myself or throwing it out. Oh, is going, that true like, from months. smoking yeah. a joint? Yes. Like I actually kind of keep this weird, sick, you know, no, no more, never again. So like, does your son know that you smoke pot sometimes? Yes. Yeah, of course. And that you wrestle with it? Like that you're just like, ah, uh, it's bad? Absolutely. How old is he now? 22, almost 23. Right. So it's all fine yeah. now. And were you cool as he was going through stuff? I know the book is... He never went through that stuff. He has yet to establish his party habits. He's, he's still, he's kind of doing it right now with his friends. Um, you know, I didn't, I really didn't party much when he was young. I, I would do it occasionally like everyone would, you know, if he was at his dad's, I always made sure, but it was a long slog. It was, it was an 18 year sentence of getting up really early and like controlling all my bad habits, but the problem with that is, for me at least, when I controlled my bad habits to try to present this great role model for my son, I dammed up all my impulses so much that when I messed up, it was huge. I would make these enormous, and I keep learning that over and over again. If I try to be too perfect, I, I mess up in a huge way that I'm not expecting. Oh, uh, that's a giant. I mean, that's a huge thing. I think about it. Um, for me, the only recipe to stop that is to like find ways to put myself in flow states all the time. Meditation, long walks, journaling, because otherwise it all gets bottled up. Yeah. And then it has to come out in some way that doesn't serve you. Yeah. But, but this is what I was gonna, I, what I was gonna ask you a second ago. I had these two thoughts, and one was, in a lot of ways, you have a lot of similarity. The effect you've had on the culture is similar to Lou Reed's. 
Because you're a woman, though, but in a way, no, it, it is, but but also, but I do think also because of the time you did it and because of male rock critics, I'm not sure you're in your time exactly looked at in the same way. Um, but on the other hand, anything you do is an event to a kind of a big group of people, like a loyal group of people. And are you, are you surprised anew when they give a shit, when we, people like me, give a shit so much each time? Yes, I am. I am. Because I don't walk around thinking I'm a rock star. I walk around thinking I'm an artist who has to create something that will, people will be happy to have in their lives. It'll change their thinking, challenge them, provoke them. And my mother was a docent at the Art Institute for like 45 years. So I grew up knowing that that's what artists did. They changed the culture and they took risks and their lives were messy but it was so valuable to generations. We're still talking about artists of 300 years ago. So to me, it was always a long game and it was always about shifting culture and taking risks and being provocative. Totally, I mean, when, you, when you, your book and opens- And delighting people. Right, well, your book opens talking about, yeah, I saw that on your face when I, I came out when you did the, I guess, 20th anniversary of Exile. Was that the tour? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was 25th. May, 25th anniversary. You played at this place in the like West Village, did kind of. Did you mean of. like the whole Guyville album? Yeah. Because I think that was actually the 15 year. Is that what it was? When did the album so. come out? 1993. So, so maybe that that's what it was. It was like 2008, I think. Yeah, so I came out with David, my you know creative partner, and um, I remember the look on your face that all of us. And now I, it was a tour. You'd played it in a lot of places, but I, it seemed to me you really delighted at how much we delighted in it, and that we were all these old dudes singing every word. <laughs> Must have been amazing. It's the best feeling in the world. Like even last night at the gig in Woodstock, like I could hear from the second song people singing the chorus, and these are grown ups in fancy clothes and stuff, you know, and they're like singing like their kids again and what better thing to do on an evening than to relive the past uh, feel excited about what's coming in the future and just share together and, and not be self-conscious and playing the songs from your first couple albums doesn't bother you no not at all not anymore can not you still all. connect to that person who wrote them i totally can in fact i think i can connect much better now than when i was younger and felt more threatened by that social scene and maybe some of the way i fled that music scene because it, got, it just got too... Everyone thinks Guyville was a happy, perfect, wonderful, positive experience for me. But when that album came out, it was just as controversial as when I went pop. It was just as uh, turbulent and upsetting and disturbing and new. And it, people were, were not all entirely embracing of that album at first at all. Oh, yeah. Well, I know that the Chicago guys weren't as embracing. Later, they did sort of... Um mea culpa about it but at first I think they didn't they're still dunking on me Chicago is the place that I get the worst reviews still? absolutely absolutely like Derek Otis and Greg Cott are well, not hopefully I, I thought... they won't Derek Otis came to me which is all I needed he was just like you know I was kind of a dick about that stuff you know and it was really cool. He'd become a parent, and he just, he realized, he's like, you know, I was kind of a dick about it. I don't know that he, like, loves my music now, but he was just really I cool heard them it. talk about you a while ago, and, and, and I remember hearing him, because I, di I didn't remember that those guys had not liked, or that Jim had not liked Exile, or, or, you know, had a problem with the concept. But he sort of did say, no, I get why that, why it matters in, in that way. Um, but, but getting back to this, idea do younger performers so there's this group of us and i know like uh the people who i follow on twitter and who follow me if liz fair like when i even tweeted something you like let's podcast you know all these people in media in new york went a lot of women and stuff were like please do it like this would be amazing <laughs> but but 
do younger music do you talk to younger musicians does it surprise you when they're aware of it or is it satisfying to you when they're aware of it it's massively satisfying I have made so many friends on Twitter just connecting with young female artists and it made me it always makes me want to work like I was about to leave the music industry until I went on Lilith Fair and then I saw that there was a way to be around women and not feel like this like lonely female in a sea of men with the way that that works they have a way that they like to be but i don't fit into that so when i saw lilith fair i was like oh my god and i got like 10 years out of that because i thought if they're gonna be out there doing this i can be out there doing this and now it's exponentially more filled with young female artists doing what they want to do taking total control of their own vision and making it happen each one different than the next I love it. Well, it's nobody like, in rock and roll wrote as frankly about sex as you did when you made that album in particular. And certainly not about casual sex. Like, just people weren't engaged in that. Bra- they were engaged in it in their lives, but they weren't... Right, they were doing it, no, they just wouldn't talk about it. I mean, you think about the ways in which the big female artists of a generation before you, Joni or... Uh, Joni, you know, maybe the greatest songwriter who ever lived, Joni Mitchell, but she would have to write about it in a way that you had to get it, right? Not... Do, frankly and and then people took shots at you because you were a beautiful person right and that and you weren't trying to hide that either and that was all conscious on your part right that yes I I'm gonna create... I look like this and I'm gonna yes. fuck it I'm yes. gonna show you that I'm pretty I'm trying to make the world into the image that I think it should be like I'm gonna have to just walk the walk until you know that I, I just hope it spreads because like women should not have to remember when everyone came after me for being sexy at 36 of course you know, no, that doesn't exist anymore. No one would tell. On the album with hot, white, with hot white cum yeah, on it, people yeah. freaked out at you again. Right, but sometimes you have to kick the door down. Because of the photo shoot that you did, and I remember, right? Well, I didn't have a choice with that photo shoot. That was not my choice. All right, you got to explain that to people story. who understand the world. What do you mean? Do you talk about this in the book? Uh, no, I don't. But uh, no, the uh, that was a, an Andy Slater decision. He had this like super sexy photographer that he'd flown in from wherever, and I took a look at his lookbook and I said, "No, I don't want to do it. That's not the image I want to project." And that's when Andy like totally screamed at me because you know he had to send the photographer back. And he was like, you know, I don't know what you think I'm going to do with you. You know, these are the options that you have. If you don't do this, I don't know what's going to happen in your career. You could be homeless. You and Nick could be like out on the street. And he flew the goddamn photographer back again. So once again, I was being bullied by men, being told what to do, being forced in positions that I didn't like. So what I did was I turned it around on them. So in that photo shoot, I was seethingly angry when I did that photo shoot for the cover of the Liz Fairless Fest. Seethingly angry through that whole photo shoot. And I just kept, I was like taking off clothes. I knew that's what they wanted. And they'd forced me into it. So I was like, fuck it. You want it, you get it, you bastards. Right. And you knew, you had to know what the reaction was going to be. I didn't care at that point because I knew what was going on behind the scenes. And I knew that I had to fight for my personhood, whatever it took. And so instead of, like I say, being the object and the victim, I turned it around and I charged right back at that. So this is the thing, when people talk about privilege, and like when I talk about privilege, because I often talk about the fact that if you were born when I was and where I was and how I was, a man who didn't have to pay for college because his parents were rich enough to pay for college, and you got to go to a good school and you were reasonably smart, if you didn't find your way to be successful, it's all on you. Because the world was set up for guys like me. It was set up for me to chase my fucking dreams. Now I had to do it, it was really hard, but it was set up for that. 
I would never have been in a situation at 36 where anybody could tell me what to do because I would have told them to fuck themselves. And I would have believed that I had the right to tell them to fuck themselves. You were um, being called a genius by all sorts of people. This was before the album came out and they gave you shit. What do you think it was that didn't allow you to really stand up? I did stand up, but like... But you did it. I did it my way. I mean, Brian, honestly, you think that's the first time that happened to me? That's been happening to me since I was three. I have been challenged to try to make space for myself and room for myself to be the person I want to be from birth. Like, this has been a fight my whole life, and I'm not backing down. So you may see it as me caving into them, but I didn't. I took the bull by the horns, and I went for the ride on the freaking bullfight, and I keep doing it. And there's a billion more examples like that. Like, if we could talk endlessly about the times that I had to wrestle with a bull and find some way to get into the ring with it, Sometimes I lost, sometimes I won, but I never stopped wrestling with the bull. Bull being the patriarchy and the male structure and the people who had the money and the power and who were telling me and manipulating me and using me, et cetera, et cetera. There's no other option for me. I can't say no to the bull because then I get sidelined, I don't get in the game. They are the gatekeepers. So what I do is I just keep getting in the ring, getting bloody, recovering, healing, getting back in the ring, but wrestling with the This bull. is what I'm talking about. I see it with Amy, my wife, who's an incredible artist. and. You know, has written three novels and just finished directing her first movie. She wrote I Smile Back on the page a few years ago. And sometimes she'll be in situations and I will answer from my perspective. You know, a financier or a producer or somebody, uh, someone on set, you know, um, a cinematographer will talk to her in a way and, and I'll say, you're the fucking director. And she'll say, you don't understand that a, a woman talking to a cinematographer, the cinematographer could just walk off the set. Absolutely. They would never do that to you, Brian, and not because you're now, you know, powerful in the business, but because you're a dude and you're going to talk to them the way dudes talk to dudes and they're going to react. She's like, we as women, and it doesn't have to find different angles yes. to get to where we want to yes. get. And is that what you feel is I'm true? I'm a raptor testing the fences for weaknesses. Oh, that's a good line. Has that been in a song? No. <laughs> That's really good. That's such a great image. For it's a big, long, tall fence, but I'm still testing. I'm like, mar, 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 yeah, mar, right. Mar. You're gonna find your little. I will find you're gonna it. find your Jurassic Park little Relentless. hole through the fence. There weren't that many electrified fences back in the actual Raptor days. <laughs> yeah, but, no. <laughs> but yes, in Jurassic Park, there were. And do you find it? Um, I mean, I feel so fucking. I, I, I can't. It's it's really hard to like wrap my head around. You, even though I know what those people in the record business were like then, and 36 is young compared, like, it'd be harder for someone to push you around at 52, right? Yeah, but I mean, I'm still doing stuff that I wouldn't choose to do. I'm compromising. I'm, I'm, it's two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. Or worse. Sometimes it's worse. What about with the band? Oh, no, no, no. My band is amazing. And with your music, I mean, when you play your music live. Here's what 52 versus 36 is. I am, I choose who I work with. So I only work with great people now. And that to me is the biggest measure of success. And I've said that for decades, I think. The true measure of success is, you know, working with people you really like and respect. Yeah. What a luxury. I can't think of a better one. Eightsleep.com. Eight sleep. Look, it is not another mattress. Every time you listen to a podcast or go online, you get another ad for another mattress. There are thousands of them. And you know what? They're all fine. It's something to sleep on. But only one uses technology and temperature to give you the deepest, sweetest sleep. 
The Pod by 8 Sleep is the very first bed to combine dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to ensure you're getting the best sleep possible. Research shows the deep link between sleep performance and temperature. So the pod reacts in real time to your body's unique needs, adjusting the temperature to keep you comfortable and sleeping deeply all night long. The stats say it all. Customers who sleep on the pod fall asleep faster, toss and turn 25% less, have a 17% increase in periods of deep sleep, all in a crazy, comfortable bed. That's why it's the fitness-approved bed loved by athletes, trainers, and models. Right now, get 150 bucks off your pod and free shipping when you go to 8sleep.com moment. That's 8sleep.com moment. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com moment. And so this record um, that you made, is it, and the book too, are they pretty much exactly what you wanted to do and with whom you wanted to do them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's, it's not 100% what I wanted to do and who I wanted to do it with. It's like mm, 90 at least, which is a fine average. I have no problem with that. I don't I'm not, I'm not rigid. I want to move forward. I can compromise. I can work with you. I want to get the best out of you, whatever you have to offer. I absolutely don't want to just impose my vision. That's not exciting to me. What was the conversation with Brad like when you, when you decided you wanted to make a record with him again? <laughs> he was all for it. He was totally up for it. And then I was finishing one with Ryan. He got kind of pissed about that. He's like, wait, I thought we were making a record. I'm yeah, but I had this previous thing that I was doing that I want to finish that like put us on hold and he got kind of mad at me about that but then like once he understood it was fine and that thing with Ryan fell apart for obvious reasons yes and how did you feel about that whole thing I mean I have a whole chapter about it in the book hashtag Uh, it's very plain how I felt about it actually at first I didn't even want to address it I didn't want it wasn't really my story but I felt uh a sense of responsibility to back up the women who would come forward with their allegations because I had seen enough behavior to say like that could have happened and I think people were my silence was kind of deafening and so I knew I (laughs) I knew I had to talk about it but I thought I needed I often feel this way I don't want to soundbite it I need to say more this is another thing that bothers me about life we all want these superficial little like, oh, okay, I get it. Oh, okay, I get it. You know, you don't. You need to kind of... <laughs> we are way, being, we, can, like, we can go this way. Away, away from the, the people. Then we'll be found. Like, I think we should just power... Actually, we should just barrel past them. Okay, yeah, awesome. we'll power through. We're just doing a podcast walking through the park. This is going to happen. Remember that music where it was just like chatter? It was called chatter. And no. it was a sort of like very early... No, you sound like Stefan on SNL. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this new music is called chatter. Yeah. No. But so you were... <laughs> I'm yeah. sniffing my fingers. Yeah, yeah. So wait, so you were saying that every... Um, the soundbite thing in the world that everybody wants to hear these no depth requires time and focus and I don't care how fast the culture is moving and I don't care how easily you can remain entertained endlessly don't miss your life you have one and one only stop go deep reorient yourself figure out who you are now take the time it's not about oh I hate technology I love technology I can't wait for the future to arrive it does not negate the necessity the human plight is still the same and it will remain the same ever so there's yeah. no way that a hundred years can uh, overcome hundreds of thousands of years of evolution we are still gonna be the same animals are gonna require the same sense of purpose and meaning to feel happy and fulfilled well that's one thing your work has always done you've been able to talk 
intellectually about that which is primal. And then you've been able to express in a primal way the stuff you're thinking about, right? I see us as animals. I always see us as animals. We're adorable. I mean, we're awful and adorable, but like, so are animals. <laughs> you know, like, oh, no. your cat's real sweet till she's mangling a bird. Well, yeah, that was the, you know, when, when, when we found that research about what happens to single, you know, I love dogs. I mean, I love them. But when I found that research about how often dogs eat the faces of... <laughs> And we put their owners who die, they're like, the face is probably the tenderest part. Yeah, right. So, was, yeah, like, so we put that in the show, but I knew, um, because of course we are um, no different than those dogs, right? They're better than us, even, and they well, can't better. resist they it. They see better, hear better, smell better, and they're more loyal, and, like, their disposition is pretty darn nice. How, um, how do you talk to your son about um, what he should prioritize in, in the world? Hmm... I don't think I do really talk to him about what he should prioritize. I respect him as an intellect. He's very smart and very insightful. And oftentimes I ask him for advice. Can we go over to that beautiful pasture? Wherever you there? want. Whatever that pasture thing is. Yeah, let's, do you want to go around this way? Yeah, yeah let's, it's just a detour. We'll come back to this path. That's fine. Yeah, because that way is the end. So, yeah, so let's yeah we'll go around. Let's go around. Um, I'm leaving all this in the podcast, by the good. way. Good. We have to. This is a Liz Fair podcast, so it must have the artifacts of the... Uh, you know how we made it. That's that's my style. Yes, that's no, it's perfect. Aesthetic. Yes, I but just do you wish. Want to check to make sure you're actually recording? I am. I oh, checked. Okay. I have this going and this, <laughs> and I haven't I have hit done stop. That. I have had. It's totally possible. In which case, this is just a, um, <laughs> a podcast for the two of us. <laughs> it just was show. for us. And once that happened, where a, a podcast got erased. But we were listen. We're <laughs> we're doing this in the way that. Back then, people erased their four tracks accidentally all the time. Yes, they did. They absolutely did. They lost the tape. The tape got damaged. The tape got unspooled. I mean, it's amazing to think that we actually worked on something physical, that we would have to go to you know, the tape-to-tape machine and slice it with a razor blade to put, you know, to make an edit. <laughs> you had to precisely slice a razor blade on the tape to make an actual just edit. If well, you didn't like that chorus and you wanted to cut it out in favor of a bridge, you had to physically tie those two pieces and you had together. To get, you had to get it right. I mean, you could retape it back together and stuff. But not but well. Often not well. But, you know, some great records happen because of those sort of weird That's changes. That's true. That's true. It is true. I, I, what are the great records that had, like, weird... Oh, so many records had sort of, like... Um, we can go look at it together, but you can read... When you read the history of a bunch of these things... I mean, even the way sometimes backwards record backwards people would play stuff backwards because they put the tape on in a weird way. When this comes out, we'll ask um, my friend Glenn Kenny, who knows uh, rock history better than anybody, and he'll tell us. But like I remember growing up in recording studios because you know my dad made records and it um, seeing the way the forty-eight track machines would get slaved, and then you would—I mean, the two twenty-four tracks would get slaved, and sometimes then they would bring another one in and slave that. Yes. Yes. And. What you had to go through to make a record then was so different. Do you, do you do miss that stuff or no? I do miss it. I mean, I like the freedom and the nimbleness of the new technology, but at the same time, there was something crafty, like we were craftsmen doing something that actually required kind of, I don't know, it just it tied me into a sense of the journeyman, you know, bard or whatever. It just felt like we had to like make a thing. And I always grew up, wanting to make a thing so like that's why when I recorded my first record I'd never been on stage I'd never performed so Exile and Guyville came out before I'd ever really played on a stage ever 
ever. Yeah, that's just, even, even in college, you I never... I never even conceived of doing that. I would rather, you know, I did not want to get on stage, but I could understand making a thing. And to you, it was no different, like, whatever the art form was going to be. It the art form. If you said we're writing a play now or we're building a set for a play, I'm there with you. I'm yeah, honest. I love reading. I read the oral history of Exile a couple, for some reason, again, a couple years ago. Um, and hearing about how you and Brad first came together. And how, Did he play bass on this record, on yes, the new one? Did. Really? You're going to love his stuff. You're going to love what he's done on this record. Yeah, I just can't, the, the idea of it's the two of you making a record is really super exciting to me. I can't believe there's a single, what's the single out now called? Good Side. We're and, alright, we're going into the meadow well, now. A native meadow, and I think my mom would be super happy because her good friend, I'm not going to remember her name right now. Oh, I'll remember it later in the podcast, was one of the early landscape architects of Central Park. She's famous for it. And she went to Wellesley with my mother. So my mother's always saying, like, Central Park, go see the meadow, the native flowers. Well, here, here we, we are. are. Native flowers. Let's go. Let's walk through. And you're playing a gig tonight. Or I'm playing you... the New Yorker Festival tonight, which, come Alone on, or with band? Is that, like, not with the band? Oh, they, that's they, amazing. The, it, Credit to New Yorker. They they were like, no, we want the full, we want the full everything. Oh, that's too cool. That's amazing. And uh, what are you doing on this tour? Are you playing stuff from the new record? Are you playing from your whole? We're only playing the single by management's. You know, they don't want a live version out before people hear the recorded version. It's totally fine. Um, but it's mostly like we're kind of no. I don't think we have a template for this. We're trying to integrate because it's true to who I am as an artist, we're trying to find a way to integrate interviews about the book and the music. And one of my ideas is to talk about different chapters and then play a song that I wrote during that episode in my life. I think that would be Oh, that's a great idea, idea. Right? So how many gigs have you played so far on this tour? Um, not really, well, just a couple, but more like, you know, little, a couple song performances. We haven't, November is when we're gonna start doing this sort of book music hybrid. And when's the actual album gonna come out? 2020, early 2020. And the book is available now. Yes. People can get the book my now. My book is out, I'm an author, Brian. And were you scared at all writing yes. the book? Well, no, not writing it. Not scared writing it. Totally happy and, well, except for the isolation of writing, you know what I'm saying? All-nighters and long, crazy hours. Wait, but, is that what you would do? You'd write at night? Oh, yeah, I love to write at night. So what's your process? My process is I need to make the world shut up. I can't get to the pure essence of how I felt about something, the distillation of that experience for me, unless I turn the world off. And that means I can't, no one can be able to interrupt. I can't have emails coming in. I can't have the possibility of someone ringing the doorbell. I really should probably go off into the woods as writers do. But you don't. I don't because I'm, I'm a well, musician. I'm doing other stuff, you know. Well, you don't need, also, you've proven to yourself you can create the work within the c constraints of the, the way The band loves live. to um, talk about how I was still writing chapters on the road on my phone. <laughs> Part of this book was completely written and edited on an iPhone. Like, absolutely. And uh, so you, you wait till everyone goes to sleep, kind of? Yes, and I'm not taking any substance because I can't actually do anything of value when I'm drinking and or anything. So it's sober but I'm like up all night. Cause the minute it's like 10, 11, I don't know what it is. If there's like an ether that I don't hear, if it's just the effect of everything stopping and knowing no one can come around, but I need that pure, it's almost like what are those tanks that you go in, the sensory deprivation? Yeah, yeah. I need sensory deprivation. Like in altered states. But it makes me crazy. It doesn't, it's not fit for real life. Like I become sort of like some weird forest creature that 
doesn't remember how to be civilized. Well, when you get to her as you're going, I mean, for sure. For me, it's I'm, I always have been jealous of people who can do that late night thing because I'm a I'm super early morning person. Seriously? So you're like the wake up before everyone else person. I have to be four to six. Yeah, I have to be awake alone in the house, like coffee, and then um, that's when I can really do the work. I mean, we're. When I'm in the flow, I can do it kind of any time. But you know, yeah, early morning for me is when I see the world. Early morning well, for me is when I see it. the world. That's all you have to do is like wherever you can actually see the world, you must find that. Did, did you make a book proposal? I had, I think I had about a third of it written. I came in with about a third of it. And then just that's when you showed it to publishers. Yes. And that part was ner- a little nerve wracking. It was, and I have this wonderful agent, Jennifer Gates at Avidis. Like, she is my sensei. She's my everything. She's like how I couldn't function without her. She is my best, you know, sounding board. She's my protector. She's my champion. Sorry, I just remembered why I was asking you what you say to your son. Because the world is constantly so when people are young and smart... And they have these uh, impulses for doing what they want to do. But then the world has this way of trying to box them in. Yeah. And do you think your example is enough to show not to allow yourself to get boxed in, in a way? Yes, but I think I overshot the mark because he doesn't understand that his father and I both had shitty jobs in the beginning. He thinks that he should just kind of arrive at my level and be like, well, that's how you should work. That looks pretty good. What was the shittiest job? Shittiest job? God. Because you did get famous really young. I was an art... It wasn't shitty. I did... I worked at an ad agency. I worked as an art therapist at my father's hospital, moving from different, like, wards, like substance abuse or anorexics or, um... What do they call where elderly patients who are having trouble with dementia and stuff. So, so I the memory to, centers, now they call centers. them. Memory centers? So, yeah. okay, so I would move to different departments every day of the week. And I remember the worst thing about that was not hanging out with the patients. I enjoyed that part. It was the hospital itself. Like, I remember in between wards, I would stand in the stairwell where there was, like, a window with bars on it and just look out at the summer and be like, oh, God. Right. Yeah, like that Dennis Johnson book, you know. Offices, I can't do them. I can't do offices. Yeah, I I have a hard time with it other than, like, for the show, I can deal with it because I have to. Who is... is your do you think about audience a lot like who is your audience is it you like who are you making your stuff for I don't think about my audience I think about history like will this hold up you know and sometimes I don't like there's times I've definitely not cared about that and been in the moment more but I always think in terms of like I do I think in terms of legacy I really do like I want my mother would give me these poetry books from antiquity women writing about their lives from a thousand years ago and I was fascinated by, like, when they were truthful and they were revealing about the details about their life, like maybe a romantic lover was supposed to show up and whisk them away from their overbearing father, and he didn't show up. And they're, like, wistfully looking at the garden, knowing that their lives are now going to be... Con- and that kind of stuff felt so real and alive, like I could reach out and touch that girl. And I wanted to be that for future generations. And you are. I think that's a perfect, I mean, that's a perfect place to wrap up the interview portion of our (laughs) stroll through the park. Liz Fair's book is out now. It's called Horror Stories. And like I say, I've only read about half of it because I didn't know we were doing this until today. But it's really kick-ass and people should read it. And your new album is called? 
We don't have a name for it yet. That's really catchy. That is a really, that's really great. How about, uh, we were joking about this. My friend's going to do a podcast called Sorry I Asked. (laughs) Great. That's a good title, actually. Liz's new album will be out in probably 2020, but there are songs coming out now. Get them wherever you get songs. You can, Liz is on spot. You're on um, Twitter. I single out. Good side. My Twitter handle is Fizzlair. Um, and uh, she does respond. You do respond to people sometimes. Oh, I do. I love it. I'm social on the social networks. Uh, I am too. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com. Don't email me that like the sound quality on this was fucked because <laughs> we don't give a shit. It's my fault. And we I just love don't it. give a wait, fuck. Wait, 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 wait. Have you stopped it? No, it's recording. Okay, because I'm going to do something. I'm going to take people on a quick nature journey. Listen, can you hear the crickets? We're in the middle of New York City. You should see it. It's beautiful. Here, I'm going to shake a little leaf for you. Do you hear that? Pretty soon an iguana that someone let out of their house is going to come skittering down this hillside. It's going to be awesome. All right, thanks. Tune in again. Totally kick-ass. Everything uh, my young self listening to Exile and Guyville would have wanted. This is great. Thanks, Liz. See ya.